So this morning, I want to give the last talk in this series of explorations of self and not-self, which is very fundamental area to investigate. Uh, how the self appears in our experience, how it appears particularly uh, thickly or in a dominant or strong way. The study of how that appears is a fundamental part of our practice. And then the other main way that we've explored this theme is to find ways to open up to what we might call not-self, which is a translation of anatta, which is about really experiencing without a strong sense of self. Uh, experiencing moment to moment sensations, thoughts, feeling tones, much as we did in the guided meditation. And over the last uh, weeks, I've brought up different aspects of these two core ways of exploring self and not-self. We've looked at some of the main ways that self appears, particularly in this culture at this time for us. And all of those talks are available on Dharma Seed, uh, which is a website, dharmaseed.org, and they're available to be listened to, downloaded, and so forth. And so we've looked at the the different ways that self appears, uh, cultural dimensions of self, uh, more personal dimensions of self, some of it related to our own psychological uh, development. Uh, we've looked at the main way that in the Buddhist tradition, self is talked about as a way of, um, in a sense, grasping on to some aspect of experience. Could also be pushing away, but especially grasping on to some aspect of experience and saying, that's me, that's mine, that's who I am. You know? So people, you know, as a teenager, my kind friends may tell me that I'm a little overweight. I may have some lived experience of feeling a little heavy, let's say, and I seize upon that, I'm self-conscious about that, and form a sense of self around that. I am an overweight person, and that could also obviously be connected with a certain amount of distress. And, but the core uh, dynamic is that in some ways, in small and larger ways, we grab hold of a thought, of a sensation, of an observation, of some kind of internal experience, and we, over time, make self out of it. Again, we looked at the variety of ways that we do that. And we also looked at um, ways that we can open up to a lived sense of experiencing without so much of a self as reference point. And I've suggested over these weeks that actually many of the experiences which we most value have that kind of thinning of the self as part of, part of uh, the experience. When we are immersed in the natural world, we often don't have that same strong sense of self. You know, and I gave the uh, model, which can, can be a, a simple one to look at, of being 
with the sunset, you know, and we love just simply being with the sunset and we can see all the ways that when we're with a sunset, self comes in, you know. Oh, this is a great sunset. I should tell my friends about it later. Or let me get out my camera and shoot as many scenes of the sunset so I can later remember what a great experience it might have been were I not photographing the sunset. <laughs> right, so, uh, there you go. <laughs> right, and so we, we can see uh, the ways that we actually value that, that uh, sense of not-self. Often when we're, what we most value in connection with another person may be the sense of beautiful flow without self-consciousness. Much of what we call love interpersonally, there's a kind of loss of the thick sense of self and of difference. When we're in a creative flow as an artist or a musician, there also may be very little sense of self. You know? And a number of weeks ago, I quoted my mom, who's, who's here this morning, and I, as a musician, she said, if you have a sense of self, it's not good. You have to let yourself be taken over by the music, right? And so musicians or artists or many of these uh, aesthetic experiences, in a sense there's a loss of self and, a, and a, uh, almost like an opening to a sense of flow. And we uh, actually most value that. So we've wanted to increase the appreciation of those experiences and also find ways to uh, cultivate that opening, what we might call the opening to the flow, in a meditative context. And particularly in the last few times we've done guided meditations that have helped us to open to ways of experiencing with increasingly thinner senses of self. And we could understand the entire course of training in meditation as a training to open to experience with thinner and thinner senses of self, ultimately to experiencing for sustained periods without much or any sense of self, and then over time bringing that into daily experience. Now experiencing without a sense of a strong sense of self doesn't mean that we go to the parking lot and drive away in someone else's car. <laughs> so we just want to be clear that that, that, sense of, uh, that sense of being without a strong sense of self as reference point can go hand in hand with being extremely functional. The Buddha was pretty functional <laughs> in his life, for example. And we can have, and, and if, I just th- uh, if you just think of some of those everyday examples, of not-self, we can see that there is, there can be uh, a very high-level functioning. You know, think of a jazz musician. Very high, the jazz musician does not forget what instrument he or she is playing and does not forget that there are other people there. So in, in other words, the experience of not-self still has clarity, discrimination, noticing, and, and wisdom. And so, so, quite interesting in that way. And so, um, that's what we've been exploring these last weeks. And uh, 
This week, I want to, in a way, come back to something which I've mentioned, uh, usually in passing, which is that I think that this practice of exploring self and not-self has a number of social and cultural implications. And I've mentioned, again, usually in passing, how the part of our exploration of the sense of self is to see the cultural conditioning, to be the kind of selves that we are, which may vary in this room, but there's probably also a lot of commonality being in this culture, that different cultures condition different kinds of selves. And uh, they are different. They each can have some, um, some strengths and some limitations, but there is a particular form of conditioning that we all have. So the question I want to look at for the rest of this time is how do we understand and explore self and not-self in the context of our uh, global crises? So I think I had announced that, so it's not, not for some of you, I'm just dropping this right now. So, oh, I thought I came to a relaxing Buddhist morning exploration, which would leave me calm and peaceful and so forth. And hopefully that can still happen. But I do want to uh, make, because I think there's a strong connection between the uh, study of these issues of self and not-self and the kind of crises which we have, which are, I think we know they're very uh, powerful. I'm referring to ecological crises primarily, but also we have obviously economic crisis, which we're in the midst of, and we have a certain kinds of political crises, particularly a certain in my view, paralysis in the face of our real issues, you know, and not really being able to deal with them very well. That's, that's another, another question. So I wanted to look at that relationship between our practice and our exploration of self and not-self and this larger social situation. Um, one way of looking at that, or one way of rephrasing the question, is to say, what's the relationship between our individual practice and our sense of social and cultural evolution. You know, where are we going on a broader scale as a society? And what kinds of uh, understandings, in this case, of self have there been? How are those understandings of self, that kind of cultural conditioning, related to the crises we have. It would be natural that they would be, right? You have a certain constructions of selves who are going around doing things, all of a sudden and we have crises, might be related to the kinds of people that we are conditioned to be collectively. You know, not to say we're all equally responsible. You know, some, some are much more responsible than others. That's, that's, that's clear. Um, and so, what is the, what is the relationship? And again, it's a question that probably many of us have. Oh, this meditation practice can be very beneficial, can be quite wonderful, but is it simply about cultivating my private garden? Is it simply about having a little more peace, less stress, growth, and deepening, you know, as the world 
in a sense, um, deteriorates. You know? I think I'm sure it's a question that all of us, all of us ask. What's the relation of, it, of uh, these two aspects? And again, we can look at that in terms of what's the relation of individual practice and our sense of um, um, really social, cultural transformation and evolution. So what I'm going to say and try to bring out is that um, there are these deep crises. From one perspective, the ecological crisis, as well as the economic and political crises, are in part crises of the nature of the self. In other words, we have certain kinds of cells, particularly ones that are, tend to be um, highly conditioned to, in an individualist way, in a self-centered way, in a way that tends to be uh, disconnected from others and from the earth. And that these kinds of selves are deeply connected with the kind of crises we have. One of the implications of that is that when we shift our sense of who we are, we lay the groundwork not only to respond to the problems, but to make possible uh, solutions. In other words, a healthy culture, as we evolve further, will have to have very different sense of self, much more a sense of an interconnected self, an interdependent self, less self-centered, and we need to have the cultural and social forms that manifest this. The other piece is that the practices that we do, in many ways, help us to explore the limitations of the separate self-centered self and open up to more of a sense of interdependence, that sense of flow, a very different identity. And so the practice that we're doing in my view, has a large role to play in social and cultural transformation. So I'm eventually going to be hopeful in that sense. You know, I, I, was, I remember reading something last week from uh, Alice Walker. I think it was in Yes Magazine. Does anyone read Yes Magazine? I think it's one of hopeful. Um, they focus on a lot of hopeful aspects of transformation, different than the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, which has some stories like that, but um, not so many. Okay. Um, and so, th yeah, that, that's going to be where I'm going to go with this, that, we, that there actually, our practice has a significant role to play in this transformation. So that's what, I'll, that's what I'll come to. So first, a few words about our crises. I think probably intuitively, we all know that we're, things are in uh, bad shape ecologically. You know? We, in some ways, may not have been affected personally a lot. 
If you lived in the Midwest this summer, you would have been. Or if you lived in Pakistan or some other parts, you would have been. But probably for many of us, we don't feel directly affected so much. Um, and we may be affected by some of the economic crises, and where it may be affected in other ways, but it may not have had a lived experience of being deeply impacted. That's my, that's my sense. That's my experience, certainly. And yet, there's, I think we may also have a sense that um, um, we're in a kind of a bubble, and that we know that the forces, particularly the forces related to global climate disruption, are uh, keeping on developing strength, you know, and that uh, there actually uh, could be a major impact felt for many of us um, sometime in the not-so-distant future. You know. And we also know that uh, one of the problems is that the, you know, with climate disruption is that a lot of the actual lived experience of problems are not actually felt until things are actually too far gone to really respond. That's one of the problems of this kind of crisis. I think you know that, right? That, that this, is how, this is how climate disruption works when it's really felt in an intense way things are set in motion that are, uh, in many cases, irreversible or irreversible for a long period of time. So let me just mention a few comments. There's a very stunning article that some of you may have seen by Bill McKibben, who's one of the great activists on climate disruption um, in the United States and in the world. And how many of you know of, of him and know of his work? And, he wrote an article in Rolling Stone, which came out at the beginning of August, which you, you, know, you can get on the web. Uh, and he just listed some recent occurrences. And I just wanted to, you know, I'll use some of his work as just a, a short entryway into getting a sense of the issues here, or get a sense of the problems. He said, in uh, June, in the United States, 3,200 locales broke all-time temperature records. The, the May before that, the May of this year, was the 327th consecutive month in which the temperature of the entire globe exceeded the 20th century average. The odds of which occurring by chance were 3.7 times 10 to the 99th which means uh, about as big a number as you could imagine. So the chances of this happening by chance are uh, z close to zero. The spring in the United States was the warmest ever recorded. In Saudi Arabia, there was rain despite a temperature of 109 degrees, it was the um, hottest temperature of rain ever recorded in Saudi Arabia. And so you're having these extreme weather occurrences. And one way that uh, Bill McKibben framed this is that uh, he said that there's an emerging consensus that if we increase the temperature beyond two degrees Celsius, there will be, uh, we're, we, we will go into um, 
basically a major, major disaster. And there's an increasing um, international consensus about that. We have already increased the temperature by about one degree Celsius. And so he said we have, um, you can actually calculate the amount. And some people think that two degrees Celsius is still going to be disastrous. People like James Hansen, some of you know, is the, who is of NASA and so forth. So um, two degrees is, is, um, is conservative. And he said that there are, there's a, when you have that two degree number, you can actually calculate how many tons of carbon can be burned within the next period of time. And that, that number is actually uh, 565 gigatons. And he said that the, um, energy, the energy companies exploring fossil fuel have plans to develop 3,000 gigatons of coal and other uh, fossil fuels, meaning that the uh, current uh, energy companies have their, their total economic plans uh, based on um, plans which would be totally disastrous for the whole world. You know, that, that they are, you know, and their, their economics are based on exploration of these materials. Um, another, another writer, um, Lester Brown, some of you know, who's uh, been director of the World Watch Institute and based in Washington, is a ma major author. I brought in some of these books. He has a book called World on the Edge, and he says we need, if we don't reduce carbon emissions, by 80% by 2020, uh, there is major disaster. And of course, the last, uh, there was a, a summit in Rio on uh, climate issues, you know, this earlier this year. Obama did not attend. Nothing happened. Right? So you have this context in which the political leaders are doing almost nothing. And you have this, these mounting, mounting problems. And um, there's a very, this book uh, by Lester Brown is very interesting because he maps out exactly what needs to be done. It's not rocket science, actually, to know what to do. <laughs> you know? uh, the, what's hard is to have it happen. Uh, what's, what's hard is the political will. And we might say the power of the corporations, right? That's what's, that's what's hard. Uh, but you know, Lester Brown has this very straightforward analysis. Okay, here's what you want to do. And he has like five areas. You want to solve global climate change issues forever? You want to deal with it? Okay, here's what you do. You, and he has you know, like five different categories. Um, increase energy efficiency and conservation. He has a list of all sorts of things you, one can do for that. Um, um, you know, very practical things. Uh, shift from fossil fuels to renewable energy. And again, with this shift away from uh, fossil fuels and the burning of carbon in a, in a very strong way by 2020. And he says the major uh, way to do that is to institute a carbon tax, which essentially has people pay the true cost of uh, using fossil fuels, which we don't pay now. So, uh, so there are all sorts of things there. Shift, stabilize population, eradicate poverty, restore the earth where it's been damaged, and feed people. 
you know, the notion is that uh, population is a very strong pressure and that uh, where people uh, have enough to eat and have, have lives that are not marked by deprivation, uh, population stabilizes and there can be uh, uh, basically a stabilization of the use of energy. So it's all right out there. What's, what's not there is the clarity about the issues and the political will. And so, um, uh, you know, Brown, though, has, has suggestions on how to have this happen. He thinks, you know, he thinks that the most likely scenario for this to happen <coughs> is for citizens to become uh, tremendously active and just demand this. That is not, it's not happening from the leaders. So, I'm not, uh, this morning, going to try to suggest a social or political strategy <laughs> to resolve these issues. I really wanted to, I wanted to frame it like that because it's really a predicament. And I know for myself, when we look into these issues, it's a very natural question that arises, what can I do and how can I, how can I respond? You know, it's very, I mean, and how, how can I look into this without being overwhelmed, right? How can I, some, I, I've noticed, even with friends who have done long years of Buddhist practice, I've mentioned climate disruption, and they say, I think I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> you know, there's, so there's a real sense that we have of this being a lot to take on, and I recognize that this morning, if you were feeling a lot, you know. Um, uh, you know, when I, I've done some day-long uh, retreats, workshops on this topic, and we, we, all, we give a lot of attention to working with that sense that arises often of uh, overwhelm or this being too much or what can I do. You know, so that's very important. I'll come back to that. But what I, what I want to suggest is that, um, is to connect this with the sense of self, because I think that in many ways this, um, these problems are related to a contemporary sense of self and part of the way that things change is by shifting our very nature of self. This is where I find limited something like Lester Brown, who, who gives a lot of very clear policy changes on how to, things could come about. But if people have the same old sense of self, how are they going to make those changes? Because they're good ideas, because they're necessary, perhaps. But they come the energy for change comes more when you, feel, when you feel as part of your nature more connected with others and more connected with the earth. That's, that provides energy for not just an energy to deal with what's happening, but for a stabilization into a new kind of culture. And that's where our practice can play a large role. So I wanted to say a few words about how the current crisis is related to uh, a crisis of a sense of self. This, to me, it's really pointing to the limits of the individualist self. And to some extent, it's produced by that. It's produced by that sense of self. Um, and I've talked sometimes about how the cultural conditioning for most of us is towards a form of what we could call hyper-individualism. Again, which has its merits. I'm not totally, I, I think from an evolutionary point of view, the development of individualism has some clear 
um, important, uh, what, important um, markers, or there are some important things. To develop an individuated self is quite important from an evolutionary point of view. Like all types of development, things can get stuck, or things can reach their limits, and then there needs to be some kind of correction. And like it or not, uh, our Mother Earth is providing correction <laughs> to, this, to this sense of self. And so it's like Mama knows best. <laughs> okay. So, um, so what, is the, what is the modern individualist self like? Well, we probably we know it very well because we were raised that way by and large, you know, most, most of us. So the modern self tends to be what? Uh, I just I mentioned, want to mention a few things. It's dominated by thought. There tends to be, uh, which is not always good quality thought. So we, our cultures are dominated by thinking. You know, the, the key text bringing up the modern world, Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Right? Thinking as the center of modern identity. Thinking, rationality, again, it has its merits linked to the rise of science, linked to liberating thinking from religious dogma, very important. So think, you know, liberating thinking, very crucial. But when thinking dominates, can be problems, dominates the emotions, dominates the body. Culturally, we are out of touch with the body, generally out of touch with emotions. Tends to be a lot of focus on my needs, my autonomy, my life, my story. And a focus in that way. There tends to be a valuing of the male more than the female. So I think that part of the shifting of the sense of self also has to do with shift of gender uh, perspectives. I think that's quite an important part of it. And the modern self is definitely separate from the natural world. You know, so you have this kind of separate, autonomous, individuated, rational ego. <laughs> And that's what we encounter in meditation. That's what a lot of us are, are working on. So modern culture is very separate from the natural world. So we don't have a sense of necessarily it having value. It's there for us. You know, we, you know I can remember um, a long time ago when I, lived, when I was living in the mountains in Virginia, I was really shocked by a fellow. You know, I was there and kind of like uh, more the old hippie days, <laughs> you know, and loving to be in the mountains and with this beautiful nature. I remember one of my neighbors there, he just said, he just looked at, he just looked at the land and he looked, he saw money. <laughs> he saw cutting down trees and setting up an RV park <laughs> in a beautiful valley, right? And there's that certain mind that, you know, just looks at nature and sees what can it do for me? And it doesn't have, as it were, its own intrinsic value. And that's linked also with the devaluation of peoples who live closer to nature, particularly indigenous people. So this is like the modern self that we grew up to. And again, probably a lot of us have been looking for ways to correct aspects of that. So we, we meditate, and I know for me, when I was first meditating, I really got in touch with my body, which I, even though I had been an athlete, I was not in touch with my body before meditating. And so in meditation, we can become in touch with those parts of ourselves which have been uh, fragmented off or relegated to secondary status. And we can really uh, work in that way. So 
uh, I was thinking of how is this modern self connected with the crisis? And I was thinking of um, a class that Diana Winston and I uh, led about in 2001, actually. Um, early 2001. And the class was on, it was called a Greed Management. We offered this class on greed management. We anticipated many people would recognize that they had issues of greed and would come to the class. That did not happen on a large scale. <laughs> but rather, uh, five people came. So we had two teachers and five people. And we were pretty cool with that because we were, we were at that time interested in we were interested in the, the subject matter. And what we found was very interesting. And if you think of what, when we explored this, and I sometimes mention that our, it was, a, I think, a five-week class, and the final exam was to do silent walking meditation in the newly opened Bed Bath & Beyond <laughs> in, El, in El Cerrito Plaza. Okay, that's what, we, that's what we did. But what was interesting is that we found we found, uh, I got a lot clearer about what greed is. And listen for what I found to be the characteristics of greed, just looking individually, and think of this as in relationship to, to something like ecological or even economic crisis. We found that when I was taken, when I or we were taken over by greed, there was short-term thinking. It was really a matter of what I want now. That's what greed is. I want this now. Related to that, there was an inability to have any consideration of long-term consequences. It's like an addict. Yeah, a little bit like an addict. Long-term consequences cannot be attended to because I want this now. Think of that in relationship to the economy. Think of that in relationship to ecological problems. We want our energy now. We cannot think, you know, as some of the indigenous cultures did, when, you know, remember that idea of seven generations, let every action be looked at in the context of seven generations. So greed is connected with an inability to look at long-term consequences. Another aspect was when I am in the, uh, connect, when, I am, when I am greedy, other people Basically, other people's needs do not matter. In fact, other people don't matter that much. Right? And so think of that in relationship to um, how much greed, is, I'm not saying greed is the essence of the modern self, but it, in, in certain patho pathological forms, it gets developed very strongly. I think, I think we could say in our culture, we can see that in terms of some of those aspects, in terms of economics, in terms of the ecological issue. And we also, have, I, we also found that with greed, there was a sense that if I act for what I want right now and grab hold of it, this will somehow bring me happiness. Right? There's a sense that this is actually a good thing for me to do right now. So this, is, you know, this greed is something that we all know as a daily experience in smaller, sometimes larger ways. But it's interesting that, that those aspects become um, magnified and develop into a kind of crisis. When, you know, and we have some of those other tenets of um, 
of uh, being separated from the natural world, seeing the natural world as only resources to be used, right? So we have that, that cultural model of self. And this, you know, other manifestations of that kind of individualism are the uh, relative breakdown of community. Um, I think the, de the developing, the increasing apathy about political life, which wasn't always the case. Um, um, I heard a study a few days ago that said that uh, they had done the same test. It was a, one of the most um, well-respected uh, social survey tests. And they found that between, um, I think it was between uh, 1985 and I think 2007, when they asked the test, when they asked the question, how many friends do you have? And in this particular test, it wasn't an abstract question, you actually had to name them. When they actually asked that question, they found there was a, almost a 50% decrease in the number of friends that people mentioned in a um, little over a 20-year period. Whether what's that connected to? I don't know. It could be connected to aspects of technology. You know, even though some people have thousands of friends technologically. <laughs> you know, so it's interesting. People reported that there was another study which went from the mid-60s to the mid-90s, which asked the question, can most people be trusted? And there was a decrease of 33% in the answer to that question. Uh, I remember there were other tests which asked people, again, about do you have friends? Most men said they had, said they had no friends. And those who answered and said they had friends, it was almost always the wife. Hmm. Right? So there's, you know, it's increasing. This is, these are markers of individualism. No. And so I think probably for us being here, we may have some unease with some aspects of our conditioning. I mean, we may want to open up more to a, maybe a more expansive sense of self. So the question is, how are we doing that with our practice and how can we do that more? But I think naming it can be helpful because we can see it more clearly. Can you see how that sense of self, the individualism, the separation from other people, the separation from nature, the, you know, the economic system which tends to um, value self-centeredness and in many cases greed. Can you see how that can be connected with some of our crises? And what's being pointed to is um, how might we actually see the movement to a sense of a connected self or interdependent self as something which I think is both necessary to respond to the crises and also to provide the basis for, we might say, a culture that would not have these problems. Definitely, if that healthy culture develops, healthy in the present time, over time, it will develop its own problems. That's how evolution works, right? You don't, it's not like you reach heaven and not, you know, history doesn't happen anymore. You know, despite some people thinking that 1950s America marked the end of history. There were a lot of academic tracks on that. Can you believe that? There, do you remember some of those texts? There was a text by, called The End of History by Francis Fukuyama in the 1990s. He said, we have arrived. U.S. capitalism is the end of history. All the answers are there. A little short-sighted, but um, certain complacency, which you can, you know, 
which is no doubt occur, you know, occurring in certain political speeches as we speak. <laughs> hope, that, hope that was not too partisan a comment. I think, it, to, to be completely fair, I think it occurs on all sides. Okay, so, okay, we're not, we're nonprofits at Spirit Rock. We don't make partisan political comments. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, and so, so the question is, what, how does our practice help us move towards this more connected sense of self? Um, you know, I thought maybe to, uh, how do we see ourself as more part of a flow? How do we move away from that conditioning to be individualist? I think our practice is a major way we do this. You know, there are all sorts of ways that we can do this. Many of us probably connect deeply with the natural world. You know, many of us uh, may be very interested in community, may be very interested in developing more of a network. You know, so we can do this in all sorts of ways. Maybe some of us are actively involved on, on certain issues. So in our practice, we've looked at these two rhythms for working with self and not self. First, we study how this more limited sense of self develops. We study that in our own minds. We look at that. We keep on looking at where the self becomes, as I was uh, saying, uh, thick or uh, strong. And we look at that in in ordinary ways and uh, ways that are more connected with this uh, modern sense of the self. And then we open open to this sense of um, interdependence. You know, we, we do that in our experience by, in part, by in meditation, opening to the sense of being with flow, being with experience without the addition of self. You know? And the challenge is to do that in meditation, and then how do we bring that out into the entirety of our lives? That's, that's challenging. How can we live with that sense more of flow and interdependence with others, in talking, in more complex activities than meditation. You know, it's not just, I think, what's being asked of us is not just to have that sense of flow in meditation and find a little more peace, but there may be the invitation, there is, there is I think, the invitation to see how to manifest that in all the parts of our lives, to have that sense of a more interdependent self be guiding us in everything we do. That's challenging, right? And that's where we need to be together, talk together, and find ways, find ways to do that. So we do that in meditation. We do that by our study of, of what constitutes wisdom, of seeing, uh, really of seeing in a different way. How can we see the world more through interdependence. And there are a lot of different ways that we could do that meditatively and experientially. Simply, for example, working with something like empathy, as we've sometimes mentioned over these weeks, being with another person and tuning in to what the other person is feeling. Can, how do we cultivate that sense of interdependence with another person? And a lot of us do that all the time as therapists, as teachers, as parents, as family members. And so how do we bring that sense of interdependence out more and more? I think working with empathy, working with the heart, with compassion, is a major way we do that. You can, you can remember, I think, some of the classical uh, statements. Um, 
in the text, uh, it's said that uh, metta, loving-kindness, is one of the major forces which breaks down the barrier between self and other. You know, when we do metta, when we do some of these heart practices, and you, you know, I think maybe the story I've mentioned a few times of the group of monks who were lead, living with the head monk Anuruddha, but because they were so unified, they said, we have all taken on the name Anuruddha. And when the Buddha visited them, he said, hey, you Anuruddhas, <laughs> how are things going? You know, and, um, and Anuruddha answered, having surrendered my own mind and heart, I am living only in accordance with the mind and heart of these other ones. We have diverse bodies, but assuredly, we only have one mind and heart. Very interesting. You know, so that may be, you know, I have other friends uh, who are working, try to, trying to develop a sense of group consciousness, of some sense of uh, an interdependent self in a group context. I think we do this in families and sometimes with people who are very close to us. How do we, how do, we do this? This is part of, part of that shift. And I think we, so we do it with our minds, we do it with our hearts. I think we do it with our bodies. When you study something like Qigong or some of the energy practices, you can have a sense of the body not as this individual thin uh, skin encapsulated self, but something that opens up to the earth and that can feel uh, experience as this energetic phenomena in which we're connected with other beings. So meditatively, we can actually study how we're interconnected at the level of mind, heart, and body, and then bring that out into, into daily life. And I just want to finish by saying, I think very much in terms of the crises of our time, we can also be motivated by this wonderful figure that I keep coming back to, the figure of the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva is the one in the Buddhist tradition who's dedicated to both awaken, to do the individual practice, and to help others to be interconnected. And so it's a beautiful model, and we can study. And you know, the, the Bodhisattva trains in exactly what we're training in, trains in mindfulness, and trains in the open heart, trains in wisdom trains in equanimity, trains also in skillful action. How do we bring our experience out into the world and how can we help others? And the Bodhisattva is particularly powerful because the Bodhisattva seems to be one who is not easily um, overwhelmed or distressed. The Bodhisattva has experiences, has been willing to open to suffering, has been willing to open to difficulty, and has the inner tools to do that. That's what also in part we're training for. Has those tools. So the Bodhisattva is not scared by, by global crisis. Or maybe if, there's, if the Bodhisattva is scared, then he or she works with it and comes back to balance eventually. You know, so we need all these tools and trainings. Someone who wants to respond to the needs of the world has to have those inner tools to be able to be with the difficulties and come back to balance, you know, to have that sense of equanimity. A lot of ways to do that, you know. Um, there's a beautiful passage from uh, Joanna Macy. She, she likes to have us have our identity get really big and be with the entirety of the web of life. She said that's very helpful for going beyond limited identity and sense of self. She says, if we are not as separate from the living, if we are not separate from the living world, then we should act our age. 
we are four and a half billion years old in terms of the origins of life and 15 billion years old in terms of the Big Bang. Every atom and every molecule and every cell of our body goes back that 15 billion years. The life that is now beating our hearts and breathing our lungs now didn't begin with our conception. Rather, life flows through us. For me, this is a wonderful doorway into equanimity. We can also feel the presence of future and past generations encircling us, cultivating a sense of our collegiality with them, seeing them as companions on this awesome journey. I would call this an ordinary person's version of equanimity. I am just part of this great story. This helps us as activists to give up trying to do it all in our lifetimes or to succeed as the most effective social change agent the world has ever seen, the peerless defender of the rainforest or the conqueror of the evil empire. Rather, there's a web of life that's much bigger than us. We're part of the story. So it's having that sense of self, uh, in a sense, expand and go beyond the, the limited sense of self. So the bodhisattva knows how to be with what's difficult. The bodhisattva knows how to have that sense of equanimity. And the bodhisattva knows how to respond and keep responding without being attached to things working the way you think they should work. Some way of just staying with the process and and being there, continually responding. You find this. When I did the interviews for the book, The Engaged Spiritual Life, I interviewed about 15 spiritually grounded activists. And I found that almost all of them had something like this sense of the long haul, that they had over the years developed tremendous patience. There were ups, there were downs. They just kept doing it. And any time they got stuck or overwhelmed or knocked around, it became a learning experience, something to keep going. So this is uh, Dr. Ari Ratni from Sri Lanka. He said, when I do something with good intentions and I quote unquote fail, I do not take it as a failure. It may be a failure to others, but to me it is not a failure because that failure may have taught me equanimity or detachment or renunciation. In learning to accept failure, I succeed. Every action that I carry out carries an internal reason which is always beneficial to me. And so I think we, my hope is that we have this sense that what we're doing here is very precious to the earth. In a sense, it's, we could interpret ourselves. We are part of the self-correction of life. <laughs> that we are really part of the correcting, the correction mechanism for this hyper-individual culture, which has, reached <coughs> its, which has reached its limits. And so, you know, in summary, in closing, I think that what's important is that we keep doing the inner practices and then we find ways to respond, you know, that follow our own gifts. This is, again, a, Joanna Macy has this beautiful model of how change occurs. She says that it's not like all of us have to do everything. It's not like all of us have to be frontline activists. She says, no, the change that really is important has to be a big change, has to be a significant change, and it occurs in three main ways. There has to be some way, some way of stopping damage from occurring, from preventing harmful actions from occurring and continuing to occur. And some people primarily focus there. And that's, we sometimes call those people activists. And some of us may do that some of the time. But then she said there's also the second 
major way that change occurs is through a shift in the very nature of our institutions. How we do education, psychotherapy, um, um, maybe even meditation, how we, how we change medicine, how we change law, how we change all these different areas, how we change parenting, and so forth. And that a healthy culture, or a culture that's based on this more interdependent self, isn't just about protesting something. It's about actually finding ways that are stable to live day to day and have a culture and have institutions and have ways of doing things. And I know a lot of you are exploring this now, exploring these different ways to work with our fundamental processes. And then she says the third way that change occurs is through a shift in our very way of experiencing. This, we could say this is a shift in away from that more limited sense of self towards, we could say, a wider sense of interdependent self and uh, further exploration of not-self. That's something that we do in meditation, we do this more of an inner experience. And she says that all three of these are totally necessary. You know, unlike a lot of the environmentalists who don't focus on the inner work, uh, I think I and, and she would really say that there has to be both inner transformation as well as outer transformation. That's really where we play this very special role. I think I never got to that quotation from Alice Walker. She said that in the major transformation of our times, retreat centers and learning meditation plays a very, very precious role, very, very crucial role. It's in all sorts of ways. It helps people um, restore themselves, come back to themselves, to renew themselves, uh, to gain perspective, to work through stuff that's accumulated in our work or being in the world. And it also, it also gives us the tools that are those of the bodhisattva that are necessary for really being skillful in our action. And so she said that places like Spirit Rock are very, very precious and our meditation is precious. And so maybe in closing, uh, paradoxically, I think we need to find also, as in, remember that, as in that uh, statement from Howard Thurman, uh, I think we need to find where our own passions are, where our own gifts are, and connect that with both our own inner change and the healing and transformation of the world. Remember the Howard Thurman comment? Maybe I'll end with that. He said, paradoxically, lifelong activists, particularly for civil rights, he said, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive, because what the world needs is people who have come alive. So I'll stop here. Thank you. I know there was, there was a lot in what I said. It went into a lot of different areas. And I don't bring in the social and cultural that much here. It's usually focused on individual practice. But I'm wondering if there are any reflections or questions. And, and I should say that I brought, a, I brought a reading list that I just have a few copies of, of uh, <laughs> on the issue of uh, 
Buddhist responses to climate change. I did a workshop a day long with uh, Sarah Shedler two years ago, and I have the I have a resource list here if you'd like one, and I can I can post this on the the Wednesday email list also. And and I thought just before I forget, I mentioned I have some books here that have been helpful. Very wonderful recent book, Joanna Macy, Active Hope. Wonderful summary. This could be, I would say, if you had to choose one book, this would be it. To about connecting the inner and the outer. And then you know Bill McKibben, book called Earth, E-A-A-R-T-H. And then uh, a book, uh, A Buddhist Response to the Climate Emergency, came out three years ago. Uh, edited by uh, John Stanley, David Loy, and Gurmay Dorje. Has a so has the Dalai Lama and many other people responding to these issues. So please. Well, I have no doubt that you are coming from the highest wisdom, mm-hmm. as I've seen you several times. So help me. Yeah. If we're part of fifteen billion years of this evolution, then it stands to reason that many galaxies. And, yep. and that we're also part of that impermanence. Yeah. So how do you reconcile activism with an acceptance of the other impermanence of everything? Yeah. The question about uh, how to how to connect, let's say, being responsive um, with uh, being responsive and active in whatever way, with the reality of impermanence? So that's a good question. And um, it could be, could be a whole talk on that, on that theme, actually. So generally, I think the response would go back to the way we hold our practice, both in wisdom and in compassion. And that both are really, really crucial. And that uh, sometimes when we look at impermanence, we're primarily focusing, we might say, on the wisdom side. And we are looking at how things come and go. And when we bring in, it's the compassion aspect that, call, that, that uh, calls for responsiveness. So it's the compassion. And it's often said that these are the, that the highest teaching is to bring these together, is to bring wisdom and compassion together. And there's a, some of you may know, I, I read it sometimes, there's, um, there's a beautiful poem by uh, Gary Snyder. It was called After Bamiyan. And, you know, it, it was about him reflecting. He, he, someone asked him, um, why are you so bothered by the Buddha statues being blown up by the Taliban in 2001? Don't you believe in impermanence? <laughs> You know, and, um, and his response was to quote a haiku by Isa, who was a Japanese haiku writer from the uh, early uh, 19th century. He wrote a haiku about the death of his son. His son, and he said, the haiku went, this is but a dewdrop world. And that's a reference to the Diamond Sutra and the sense that everything is impermanent. It's like a, a dewdrop in the morning. He said, this is but a dewdrop world, and yet. Mm-hmm. And Snyder then adds, 
that and yet is about compassion. And that may be the heart of the Dharma. So there's some way that we can be helped by both wisdom and compassion, but we can also sometimes, if we don't bring in the one and the other, we can get unbalanced a little bit sometimes either way. That's, that's possible. We can, if we, we don't have the wisdom, we can have our hearts totally knocked around by being involved and so forth. So that's a short answer. Yeah. Thanks. Please. Um, I appreciate the balance in the talk so that I didn't feel as distressed at the end as I felt at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, I mean, truly happy about how that happened. But what I noticed at the beginning in, in the nature of my distress, which is both, I think, personal and not so personal, too, yeah. given I was born in 1949. Um, but it, 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 the cultural conditioning had to do with um, uh, the atomic bomb yeah. and go, having, and I just realized the, again the effect of that on me in terms of ways I'm optimistic and ways I realize I'm not. Yeah. Probably very afraid of you know, going under your, you're being trained yeah. under your school desk um, and that the world could end. I mean, so this is like teach, plot. Um, impermanence <laughs> or <coughs> catastrophe. Yeah. And that we, I'm part of a generation of yeah. people, and I just realized that that it was good to see it. I mean, I yeah. would rather it didn't happen, but it really did happen, and it happened to many people. Yeah. Yeah, th- thanks, Liz. There's so really um, comments about this being connected with memories, really, of. Uh, the fear of collective catastrophe at one time, maybe as a child, uh, doing air raid drills, uh, going under your desk to protect yourself against nuclear bombs. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think what it points to is something I, you know, I, I sometimes think I should do more teaching of the kind of work that Joanna Macy does, because I think in many ways these all have effects on us, or even reading the news has a big effect. And we can get a little numb and really not really be able to take in the information. And some of the work that is important that Joanna Macy has been a pioneer in is in um, doing practices in which in a really a a wonderful container. There are ways that one can go into what the actual feelings are. Because we don't have the social counterpart of psychotherapy. Right? You can go in and talk about all your feelings about, you know, your partner or your mother and with a therapist and work it out to some extent. But we don't have ways of doing that with the, the residue of fears from being a child and going under that desk or, you know, the, uh, the, the, I think everyone probably has some sense of, you know, the um, dangerous situation we're in collectively. And maybe that something could, you know, could conceivably change, not very, um, not very distant future in a major way. Um, um, we don't know. I mean, it, again, what, is, what does 
changed me. It's changing for those people who had who have droughts, and you know, it's changed for those people in Pakistan who had you know, record floods some time ago. But I think we know that. But there, there, what I've experienced personally is that unless we face some of those feelings, we tend to be somewhat paralyzed. We don't want to go into that territory, you know. And so, and and what I found in doing a lot of this work with Joanna and then sometimes leading these myself, is that when we go into that territory and actually touch some of those emotions and touch what's there, first of all, you do it with other people, so you realize and you get a sense of it, and it actually frees up the energy. So it's, I probably personally should offer this more. Sometimes I've thought that it's, should offer it more, you know, should offer it once a month at Spirit Rock, something like that. Because it's really, because um, I think, you know, th- and this is where I think that our practices have a lot to offer because working with what we've taken in emotionally, and a lot of which is somewhat beneath the surface, is one of the great contributions we can make. Because you know, I think largely so many people in the culture, there's a certain amount of paralysis, denial, confusion, distress, not wanting to look at it, and so forth. And uh, not, of course, one can't force someone to go into the emotions, but one can make the opportunity there. And so I'm partly talking to myself. I should offer that, or there are people. But um, I think that's a very, very important aspect here, you know, because um, uh, I think that that helps with it. I I found that personally, you know. I I actually did a series of trainings, uh, this is a long time ago, with Joanna Macy. This is 20 years ago. I was being trained to facilitate this work. And we had our first two trainings the first two weekends of the Gulf War, 1991. You know, and, um, and you know, I, I had been quite active in trying to you know, help bring attention to people and maybe stop, help stop the war, which uh, was not successful. But, um, but I found myself internally paralyzed when the bombing started and in doing these practices and really going into what was felt there, all the different emotions, it was uh, completely liberating. I, I was liberated to be responsive. And when we don't do that, we do get kind of stuck. And we can kind of know that in ourselves, right? Kind of know, okay, it's just... And so, I would, and we, it's hard to do that by oneself. So we need these uh, forums. Yeah. yeah. Maybe last one, Marty. Here's uh, another quote that... Um, I don't know whether I quite have it right, but the one which you can help me with, when yeah. I look within, yeah. I see, now, I, do I have this correct? I see that I am nothing, that is wisdom. Yeah. When I look without, I see that I am everything, that is love. And between these two, my life turns. Yes, it's, it's, it's close. It's, um, it's, it's, a, it's by Nisargadatta. And you know it's related to to your your question really. It's again it's emphasizing. Uh, he says, um, let's see if I don't have the quote right here, but he says that um, uh, you know I, I can shift attention when I look uh, when I look within. I can see that I am nothing. And when I look. Uh, Let's see. Uh, we'll just go with the way you said it. I don't think it's quite a, quite 100% there, but the, the essence of it's there. When I look, you know, when I, 
when I look uh, outside, there is connection, there's a sense of love between the sense, and I am everything. So I am both nothing and everything, and between these two, my life flows. Right? So it's, it's that sense. And it's also, uh, there's a, at the, one of the passages that Joanna gives is she received a prophecy from a Tibetan teacher. It's called the Shambhala prophecy. And it basically says, um, at a certain point in the future, the barbarians will have, will have developed great weapons and will be threatening the world. At that time, the Shambhala, Shambhala warrior has to arise and, and respond to the situation. Now, the Shambhala warrior is not a warrior in the usual sense. The Shambhala warrior doesn't use weapons. Rather, the Shambhala war, warrior is guided by two tools, wisdom and compassion, and uses those to, to respond. So, so I hope that, that you know, in this short time, I've been able to have some threads, maybe some ways to take this further. And if you'd like, we could do this further here. Um, but that there can be ways of taking this further. And maybe above all, just seeing that connection between our practice and maybe what's called forth. What's called for, I, I believe, in an evolutionary way for our, our human species and the earth to um, develop further. So, may, may our mourning be of benefit to ourselves and to all beings, which includes ourselves. <laughs>